Dionysus this Dan, mate. I was thinking for our 100th episode, it might be really nice to get people to send us in, you know, voice notes or messages saying how much we've, like, changed their lives, politicised them, touched them, you know, just just something nice. Hello, everyone. This is Beaton from The Veil, and you are listening to the 100th episode of Death Solution Radio. And up next is Chaz Kroger and his boys from Nickelback playing the all-time greatest song ever made, How You Remind Me... What? What do you mean they don't play music? You are bored, funny, and make us laugh and bored. Uncle Dad goes to his mum's house a lot. Well, um, I was uh, hoping to reach Steph. Uh, Steph, I'm, I'm not sure if you remember, we had a, a memorable night in San Antonio uh, a few months back. Uh, and, you know, I, I opened up to you uh, more ways than one. And um, I've had a lot of Hollywood love, and uh, just, just don't compare to what that, uh, what that night held for me. And, uh, well, you know, I was hoping to get a little, one last little taste. Okay, anyway, if you could uh, get back to me. I'd really appreciate it. McConaughey, how? It's uh, Dan again. Yeah, I was just wondering if we could plug my book um, because it hasn't sold any copies and um, it looks like I'm going to end up actually owing the publisher money. So if you could just put this clip in. So it's called A Nation of Shopkeepers, The Unstoppable Rise of the Petty Bourgeoisie uh, and it's out now by Repeater. Um, and yeah, if we just imply that it's done really well and it's selling really well and not that I'm in debt or anything like that. Okay, cheers mate, bye. Desolation Radio? Oh my god, no. Like, who who even listens to this shit? Like, it's just some immature brochures laughing at their own jokes. Nobody needs it. Like, the world does not need more podcasts by white men. Hiya, it's Daya from the Whales Ate the Monkey Sanctuary, trying to get hold of Kieran. So, basically, once more, we found him sneaking about on the CCTV, and this morning, um, one of our apes, Coco, was found wearing lipstick, a dress, and in uh, what I can only describe as an extreme state of distress. Kieran, not only is this um, behaviour inappropriate, it is a violation of natural law, and if you were to keep this up, we're going to have to ask you to step away as a member of the board and that would mean unfortunately you will not get this year's calendar okay thank you bye okay what's up everyone welcome to desolation radio it's me your boy dan evans joined as ever by the boy nathan kush what's up nate all right thanks everyone for tuning in uh, today is a very special day because this is our 100th episode we've been going for about five years which is about 20 episodes a year which i think is a very respectful effort <laughs> and to mark this momentous occasion, we've got a very special uh, name, Momentous Guest. So, ladies and gentlemen, 
Mr. Michael Sheen. Hello! Happy 100. Very, very honoured. Um, <laughs> do you have a collective name for the people? Who, are they called the Desolates? Maniacs, the Maniacs, isn't it? Maniacs, of course it is. Um, well, that, well, it's yeah. either that or the Hezbollah, but you know, we <laughs> ran into copyright issues, didn't we? <laughs> we thought it was uh, uh, very fit. You come on for a hundredth, Mike, because obviously you were very good to us when we first getting started. You wore a t-shirt on. When you were just little boys. Yeah. I remember you when you were just little boys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, a, day, a real day one. So we're really, we're really, really grateful for you coming on. Um, oh, it's a pleasure. So how are you? And what have you been working on? I'm good. I'm good. I've been, um, uh, I just finished doing a film at Swansea Bay Studios um, with uh, one of my best friends who I met at drama school and who became a director, writer-director. And this is really the first time we've been able to do a film together. We did, when we were at drama school, he, um, all the way through drama school, he was working on a script. And, uh, and the plan was that as soon as we left drama school, he was gonna make this film, like a cheap version of the film, in order to try and get the money to make a proper yeah. version of it. So when we finished, and we were like, we would talk about it all the time and all this stuff. and. Um, and then when we left drama school, that's what he did. He comes from Nottingham and he went back to Nottingham and he made it. And I did a bit in it and various people did bits of it. And then uh, just as he was about to start trying to, you know, show it to people to get money to make it like properly. I heard about a film that sounded exactly the same that was being made in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I said, his name's Julian. And I said, Julian, listen, you should look, check out this thing because I'm a bit worried about it. And, um, and he went online and he found like a, a script for it online or found some information on it. And, um, and he was like, shit. <laughs> and it was, um, it was the Truman Show. Oh, and no way. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so we couldn't make that film anymore. Uh, so that was abandoned, oh, uh, no but way. it was exactly the same story as the Truman Show. So and then, really? um, and he's had various like ideas for things over the years uh, that have never got made because someone else has done it. Like he was going to do yeah, Alien yeah. Invasion shot by a dad <laughs> on a video camera just <laughs> oh, out for no. the weekend with his son, which was no essentially way. Cloverfield yeah, meets yeah. Spielberg's War of the Worlds. And, and, then he, and then he even had a really weird idea for something um, where a guy is taking his dog for a walk and he has a really shit, boring life. And he's taking his little dog for a walk and he goes over a bridge and he thinks that's it i've had enough and he's just about to jump off the bridge and kill himself and the dog unzips itself and a fat middle-aged bloke comes out who's actually an alien who says don't do it all the dogs in this neighborhood are like me we're all aliens and we think you're amazing you're the best you're the most exciting interesting person please don't kill yourself and yeah, so the guy is like yeah the guy's boosted by this and he There's decides right on that <laughs> yeah, I woof, woof, woof. and he thinks, right, I've got something to live for. But then as he lives his life, he keeps hearing dogs laughing at him from round corners and he discovers <laughs> that they all fucking hate him and they think he's a knob, but he's really interested. Anyway, then we discover that there's a thing in America that um, has a guy, a middle-aged fat guy dressed up as a dog. Like, so it's not exactly Oh, the same. it's Wilfred. Yes, so it was yeah. close enough. Anyway. This film oh, no that we've done, that we've just finished, is one of those like high concept <laughs> ideas, but nobody else has done it. Sounds just like an amazing, ama amazing writer and director, but he just doesn't yeah. like film, so he's just not <laughs> not aware of what's been going on. Like just. Uh... But this is the weird thing. It's because you know often people uh, are making 
very similar things yeah. at exactly the same time. And you think people think, oh, they've stolen ideas, but it's just this weird collective unconscious thing, I think. But now, but it's, has it been, have you finished filming then? We finished filming it a couple of weeks ago and um, it's going to be out for Christmas. Oh, that's how fast the turnover is. Yeah. Yeah, that's fast, isn't it? Yeah. It's a time okay. travel Christmas film. Okay. Like the po po polar. I was going to try and guess the plot, but I was like, if, if I end up guessing the plot, and then yeah. like, just, just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, I, like, and I just press leave meeting, and that's yeah. the end of the podcast. Yeah. We'll, we'll move back to like film later. Um, okay. Mike, you, I mean, you've been back at what, for five years ish? Um, About that, yeah. You know, obviously you're from Batalbot, and you moved back to Wales to basically help out the community and the country and <laughs> that sounds that sounds a little bit grand hang on i did not that's move how, that's you, ran out, you ran out of money in hollywood um, <laughs> they booted me out no i mean i mean yeah that does sound <laughs> really fucking pompous doesn't it? i've come back to wales to help the country but yeah you know, but like when we you know met you when you came back and we were yeah. hard and stuff you know it's quite interesting because You've grown up here, you've gone inside perspective, but you'd been away in London and Hollywood. And so you've sort of come back and it's kind of like reappraising Wales and Welsh society almost as an outsider as well. You know, like a fresh perspective. So I guess when, when you move back, hmm. were you struck by anything moving back, moving back to your old community? Uh, well, I, I, one thing I did notice in Patalbert was that there was lots of like redevelopment going on. So like the train station was being redone and there's like a whole thing outside the train station now, which is like a new, I think they, I think they call it a transport hub, which is like bus stations. It's all pedestrianized and there's like a new sort of bus station outside. The, I've never seen anyone there. It's been there for years now. I've never, I've literally never seen one person. It's, it's there. a front, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then just across the other side of the uh, transport hub, is uh, the, the the what was going to be the kind of Banksy museum thing. Again, yeah. can't see anything in there. Not sure quite what's going on in there. But uh, the plaza's being regenerated, which is good news. Um, that's great. And, you know, various things I've seen being done. But it did kind of make me think about, is there, what's, what's the thought behind it? Like, my school has been closed down and that's been turning, or is being turned into flats, I suppose, or something. And... Uh, you know, various places have been shut, like the old Sandfields Comprehensive School, which was the big, um, the the flagship comprehensive school on the Sandfields estate that originally was for the, you know, the, the families of the workers at the steelworks and all that kind of stuff. That got closed down uh, and a new super school has been built. So there's all, there's changes like that going on for better or for worse. And so, I, you know, I'm aware that there's, there's changes happening over time, but essentially... <laughs> in the most important way, nothing has changed um, in that, you know, we still seem to be plodding along in a sort of state of stasis with, um, you know, the same government in power in Wales and the same, you know, we're still at the bottom of most tables. We've still got the lowest wages in every area in the UK. We've, you know, all the same things that were problems when um you know well let's say when we got devolution are all you know still the same if not getting worse and so you know things change but essentially things seem to be staying the same and that and i know that as that exercises you every podcast as well you know and 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 you've you know released in a book essentially about that that as well 
um, or you've released a book about it. And it, it is it is incredibly frustrating, isn't it? Mm. And trying to get my head around why, A, why is that the case? And B, why do we put up with it? <laughs> why does why does the Welsh people not kind of um, decide to make a bigger change? It is is something that I you know think about a lot, and and I'm and I'm fair, you know I'm it's I'm also quite new to thinking about things in this way. You know, I spent the best part of biggest part of my life obsessed with what I did as a career. You know, as the acting yeah. side of things, and the sort of more political awareness and social awareness is has grown over time really and and a big part of those two things came together in a way when I did the passion in Patalbert yeah. where that became a kind of big bang moment for me in lots of ways and so I'm quite new to a lot of this so I'm playing catch up a lot of the time I think and so there are certain though. I suppose so yeah and there are certain things that I discover or you know think that I'm discovering for myself that, that I'm sort of like oh my god can you believe this and you know I realize other people have been talking about that and thinking about that for years and years so I do make a bit of a twat myself every now and again with it but I also am aware that I have you know I have resources that a lot of other people don't and I have a, a, a platform that a lot of other people don't so even though I'm and I and I do genuinely live in kind of terror of doing more harm than good a lot of the time yeah yeah because I think that is something that can happen a lot but at the same time, I don't want to shirk my, I think, responsibility and duty and, you know, privilege to be able to get involved and try and do stuff and try and help in some way. And it's mainly about helping people who are already doing stuff. You know, it's not about me necessarily doing anything. It's more about supporting what other people are doing a lot of the time. So, yeah, so so that, that I mean, I was just listening to the last podcast you put out, time of recording this. Uh, not the last one, sorry, the, the one about the election, after the election, because I hadn't heard about, I hadn't heard that one yet. And, um, you know, the, your frustration after the election is, you know, was very raw. You could tell it was very raw. And I know it's, I know you're frustrated a lot of the time, but, you know, after those results and seeing what had happened, you know, I could see, you know, you could feel the frustration and the, and it's very hard, I I would imagine, to um, to stay hopeful or to stay optimistic or to keep fighting away at things. But as someone in the book says, you know, there is no alternative, is there? <laughs> What's the alternative? You know, um, so, um, yeah. Well, you kindly wrote a brilliant, I was going to get on, obviously we're going to plug the book repeatedly, but, you know, you kindly wrote a brilliant forward, you know, for our book, which is called The Welsh Way, Essays on Neoliberalism and devolution, which is out at the moment with Parthian. Now, I'm not saying you're left-wing, but it feels like it was ghost-written by Che Guevara, is what we said. <laughs> so it was, no, but it was it's extremely impassioned um, and an excellent forward. And It was really punchy, wasn't it? Like, Yeah, it just, but you just get, what shines through is it, and what we've always got, like, from you when you came back is almost like this fundamental idea that, you know, we can do better than this as a society. And it's that which, yeah, well, hopefully we've always been frustrated about in the podcast, which as I said, it hopefully comes through. And we've always got the same thing from you when you came back. And like you said, when you did the passion, it's like, you know, people who've grown up in these areas and in South Wales or whatever, if you look around and you see a lot of wasted potential and things, and it's the frustration of, I think we can do better than this. And I know, I know we can do better than this, but then it's also dealing with, I'm not saying people have sort of not given up or broken in a way that people's, like you're saying, the forward people's horizons have been limited over time. Finished, over yeah, yeah, over time, people's horizons and what the, the idea of what is possible and what you can achieve 
um, and what you can get out of life has been progressively diminished in a way that you know yours hasn't because you, you know you've achieved achieved a lot you've left Wales and come back in it so I guess you know what 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 are your thoughts what are your thoughts on that like how would we mm. I'm not I mean I don't want to reduce anything to like us I'm not saying that it's the problem of Wales is a problem of uh, of psyche or culture I definitely don't think I'm not going down that route but I do think that people have often I do feel sometimes there's a, not an apathy um is the wrong word but almost like yeah people have people have become almost like acclimatized to this is what I'm gonna this is my lot in life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like a fatalism, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's. Yeah. I would. Uh, that that's the most pernicious element that I that sort of I'd say we've we've come across, and it's it's not a criticism of people because as our as the book makes clear, it's something that is you know gradually inculcated into people. Yeah. Uh, in terms of limitations, um, but it's a coming it's a coming together of a lot of different things, yeah. isn't it? I think. I mean, there's a very particular history or or set of histories within Wales um, that, you know, I I explored a bit with the Raymond Williams lecture that I did. Uh, Then there's more recent history of, you know, even just going back to the mid eighties when I was, I was like 15, I think 14, 15, when the minor strike was going on. And, um, you know, even looking back to that, the idea of, and and I I was always struck, I did a documentary about the Chartist um, revolt as well. And I was struck by, similarities and 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 it's why i interviewed neil kinnock about it actually because i've been told oh neil kinnock doesn't talk about the minor strike he won't you know he, he won't talk about because a lot of people still feel incredibly angry with kinnock about about that time and you know him supposedly not backing the miners yeah. and backing the, the action and all that and but i had been told that he was very interested in talking about the chartist uprising where a very similar thing happened where a sort of middle class lead middle-class leaders realized that a violent uprising was not going to go well for the people who were doing the uprising and but felt like it was out of control and couldn't stop it and knew it was sort of doomed to failure and i think that was kinnock's position it it seems certainly publicly that was his position that you know the 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 miners strike was not going to go well for the miners and in retrospect you know i suppose we could say he wasn't entirely wrong but at the time was that the position to take? You know, I don't know. But that sense of during the mid eighties of not just coal mining being on the line and and even not just the idea of solidarity, class solidarity yeah. or, or, or unions. It was even beyond that. It was, it was actually about a concept of community and, 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 and solidarity. And, and that, that, that concept was sort of on the line in a way. Yeah. And I think certainly for for something that has been so part of of our identity, certainly in in South Wales, and I, you know, we still there's a lot of this talk in the book, I think, as well about the idea of holding on to certain concepts as if that's the Welsh way. And when you look at it, you go, "I'm so that's just not the Welsh way anymore. Yeah. That's not. It doesn't exist. Like us hanging on to to aspects of identity." Like life rafts, you know, when they're yeah, when they're not exactly, true yeah. anymore, it doesn't help us. And I think, you know, and Raymond Williams talks about that a lot as well, years and years ago. But it still seems very relevant now. But but that that way of 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 being as a community, I think, was partly what was yeah. was at at war at that point, and we were beaten. It's certainly a watershed moment, I think, in terms of yeah having the stuff in knocked out of people collect collectively just as you said it's not it wasn't just the labor movement as you said it was a it was a way of life and a 
And yeah, and I think what that does to you as a as a community, uh, as a nation's confidence, mm. the idea that if you, it's like that. Um, yeah. What's that? That film, that Western film, where you know the bad guy throws the gun down on the floor to the good guy, the, the young guy, and goes, pick it up. is it Shane? Yeah, goes, yeah. Pick up, pick up. And he pick just goads him into picking up the gun so that he can kill him. Yeah. And the idea of going, you know, are you going to stand up? Are you going to yeah, stand yeah. up and fight the system and fight the establishment and fight the, you know, the people in charge? When, how many times do you do that and get beaten yeah. down before you start to go inward, you know, and, and how does that affect you as a society? So yeah. I think, you know, there's a sense of, of, of that. Um, but also, you know, my, my politics has really, I, I grew up in Patalbot. Of course, you're going to be a sort of vaguely left-wing, probably Labour voter, you know, to begin with. Yeah. Um, and, but my politics really has grown out of, I think, uh, uh, you know, meeting people, seeing what, yeah. what, what people are going through and talking to people and hearing things. And, um, and that's, I suppose that's why it's, it's taken a long time to really evolve because, you know, for a long time, I was just around other actors and, and, and having the kind of weird life that I had for many, many years where, you know, I'd be home here in Wales with my family and whatever. And then I'd be in on a film set or, you know, in LA or wherever. And it was very weird sort of back and forth culture shock kind of stuff. But as I start, like I said, with the passion, I think because of starting to build up new relationships and new connections in a different way back home uh, and starting to hear more and more about what people's experiences were and what the kind of challenges were in communities like Patalbot, um, I started to build up a sense of massive unfairness, <laughs> massive unfairness in that I saw the opportunities that other people had, other communities have, the access to opportunity that other communities have. And I would be, you know, going back and forth between those communities and communities like Patalbot and, you know, in, in, in all kinds of areas of Wales. And you can't help but go, why do they get that and we get this? Why, why do my friends and family's children have to deal with this and that they as don't? It, it, the, the, the unfairness becomes glaring. That's not, and that's not an ideological thing. That's just from seeing it, you know? Yeah. And so my sense of politics, I think, has grown out of that. So I'm not, I'm not a, in any way a sophisticated political thinker. I don't know what a lot of the terms mean, really. I mean, to be honest, I don't really know what socialism means or Marxism or communism. Neither you know, do those, we, we yeah. just uh, look it up Make before it up, yeah. we exactly. record, yeah. yeah just yeah, Wikipedia, the Wikipedia page, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never really, you know, understood a lot of exactly what a lot of that is. And, um, and maybe that's for the best because I think yeah. a lot of people get scared by those labels anyway, I agree, yeah. and, and get put well, off. So it's, it's about what, what is going on, you know, and hearing people's stories. And then the more I get dra drawn into getting involved, then obviously the, the deeper you go and the more you hear and the more kind of outraged you get and the more. <laughs> and so my, so my evolution, my political evolution has, I think got to, to, you know, a similar, perhaps a similar, or there certainly overlaps with what I hear you guys talking about, which is where I kind of go, I was, you know, I always probably thought of myself as a Labour voter. Hmm. And that probably is more to do with um, just not wanting the Tories to get in. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> a muscle memory. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of people probably are. Yeah. Um, and... And and then you get to a point where you go, hang on, hang on, hang on. This is, we are we are doomed. 
to just, I mean, nothing is going to change. And I still don't want the Tories to get in, but something, something is wrong here. And when it gets to the point where you think, actually, are we being sort of gaslit now? We're, we're having people, are you really saying that this is this Welsh Labour government is a socialist government? I mean, when you look at the realities of, of, of what's actually being done and the kind of hypocrisies of, you know, supposedly saying this is a incredibly kind of feminist thing because we've got half and half and then, and then, but you know, where are the policies then? Where, where, where are you actually changing the lives of women in Wales? Um, exactly. You know, it's, it's, it, you do start to kind of think where are the, the opportunities that the Welsh government have had to, you know, change things, to change the, 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 the benefit system, to change all kinds of stuff. And they just haven't, they haven't wanted to do it. And you think, well, you know, part of it is because you can't help, but not think that things kind of suit Welsh Labour the way they are. It yeah. sort of suits the, 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 the party that are in power and have been in power for so long. Are they going to risk people being better informed and, and knowing more about what's going on? And, you know, because then they might vote differently. And <laughs> so they've always got the thing of we're not the Tories, which is just like, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's very powerful. And that's not good enough for us. That's not Wales deserves better than that. Now, I don't, I don't, you know, having said that, I don't know what the answer is in like, yeah. well, then who do you vote for? And all, because again, you know, I'm terrified that if I was to vote for, you know, if yeah. my vote was to be then uh, in reality, a vote for the Tories is essentially, mm. um, then that terrifies me. So I don't know, you know, you, you guys will have much better ideas about <laughs> what people should do about that. But I'm I interaction. Yeah, well, I do know that it has to. It something has to change here, and it, we have to get. We have to try and get well, people engaged. I mean, as with as the election showed, the turnout. I mean that that the turnout yeah. is so low in Wales yeah. that apart from anything else, clearly the political system has failed in Wales. Apart from anything else, just to yeah. do with turnout. Yeah, I agree, and I, I think that was what the you know the, the crux of the book is is as you say, it's, it's trying to address that. Yeah, it may not have been gaslit, but it's when you're seeing things with your own eyes, like, you know, poverty and a lack of opportunities and things like that. And then you're being told on the other hand, things are hunky dory. And there's just a fundamental gulf between reality and, and rhetoric. Yeah. And no one's sticking a head up and saying, this isn't true for whether out of either cowardice or ignorance or people just, yeah, I think a lot of the time, um, because, you know, people don't live in, people don't spend much time in places like the private parts of South Wales who are writing about writing about like policy and so on I think it's because Wales is so insular as well really is just you know there's the meetings of, of the groups are like quite quick you know like the upper echelons of if you can even call it that of like uh, Welsh political life you know there's so much spillover between all of them then you know why would yeah. they criticize the system yeah. read in between the lines then Mike I mean it's clear that you think we you know we've given democracy a go and it's <laughs> it's time that you were installed as some sort of factor leader. Yeah. Yeah. Well, link, I, link once if you agree with. <laughs> I remember idea. you said after I did the Raymond Williams lecture. I remember hearing you saying something like uh, you were expecting me to turn up in like mirrored sunglasses, <laughs> like a daffy, with, like yeah. with my ar armed guards either yeah. side of me now, yeah, which is that. a very attractive image, I have to say. I don't think many people. I mean, I think most people would be like, including the current government, would be like, "Thank you, at last, like, <laughs> pressure's off, 
there's been yeah. some, like a bloodless coup and uh and she, she's taken oh, over um, yeah. um in, my, in my more feverish moments <laughs> i think um, about it yeah we'll, we'll move on to the arts now in the book kieran and rian put forward a, a, a quite a critical analysis of the state of arts and culture in wales and and they said you know that they, they claim that a lot of it is sort of being reduced to you know hitting outcomes you you know you get it if you can hit this for sort of solving poverty as if culture and arts are you know the, the main role of them is to sort of solve or ameliorate poverty i mean what's your perspective of the current the, the arts hmm. film, film in wales after having spent so much time in like hollywood and yeah well i think i mean first of all i think it's an artistic strategy on the part of the government by people who know absolutely nothing about art the idea that you can create good art by going, you have to tick these boxes. I mean, is just nonsensical. You can't. It, it just doesn't work like that. It's it's so totally antithetical to how to be creative. To go, uh, right? Well, you have to do this, and you have to do that, and you have to do this. And if you can prove those things, then we'll give you support. Uh, it's just that's absolute nonsense. Now, that's not to say that people who are motivated by a sense of social justice and want to let that manifest through the art they do, that's different, you know? I mean, I think, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that everything I do, no matter whether it's, you know, Twilight or whatever it might be, that I'm, I'm, I'm bringing my own values to that because I'm interpreting stuff. And, and the way you interpret it is obviously through the prism of how you perceive life and what your values and beliefs are. But nevertheless, there are more overt things, like when I did The Passion, that was, you know, there was an overt sort of belief system working through that, um, not just in terms of the, the the content and the subject matter, but also in the process, in the way of working on it, of of working with alongside a, a community to in order to express the kind of currents shifting within that community and the hopes and the fears and all that kind of stuff coming out. Um, and work and 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 doing it in a way that is, I think, I hope, it was incredibly collaborative and and there was a sense of ownership about it through the the town as well. Um, I think that's that, important as well because, like you know, people's view of media, like you know, our digestion of media through TV and films, is like almost seems like there's a barrier between the two. You know, and I think that kind of plays into like um, like celebrity status of like putting people almost on a pedestal like to take that away and just make it more of a community thing I think it's like quite yeah. powerful yeah and, and also a big part of it was about looking for what was already out there in the in the in our area um and and being sort of uh, uh inspired by that not trying to tell people what to do but to go what are you already doing and so and I think that's part of my overall sense of of how I think we should work as a nation, which is not the top-down idea of going, here's what's best for you, here's, here's policy for you, and here's ideas for you. Like, what people are already doing amazing things out there. I mean, I was at, uh, in, in Blind Gwynvy the other, the other night, and Gwynvy, the, the community there, you know, around Gwynvy Minus Hall, they, they, their, their cinema was being closed down, and this was being closed down, and they took it over, and they, you know, and they've got things going. And, you know, there's so many examples of that going on all around Wales and of people and communities galvanised uh, by by having stuff taken away from them and, and being forced into, you know, doing positive action for their community. There's stuff out there. You don't need to go and impose things on them, like support what people are doing already. And I think in terms of the arts, 
I, I feel that way as well. In Rather than going, here's money for you all to do stuff that will make Wales look good uh, in the way that we'd like Wales to look good. Like people are out there doing stuff at a grassroots level, support that. I mean, have try and find some people who actually know good art when they see it, or at least the seeds of it, and go out, send them out there, like scouts, like football scouts, you know, go and look at these communities and see what people are doing and look for talent and look for ambition and look for something that's exciting and different that's going on and then support it. And who knows where it'll go? It may very well not be telling stories about dragons and, you know, and all the rest of it, but, you know, which is, you know, probably what the government would like, but, you know, it'll be telling stories that are that are rooted in the real experiences of Wales. And who knows, maybe an authentic sense of our culture will emerge that isn't based on rugby choirs and mining. I was going to say, it almost seems like um, Welsh government would be really happy if there's like a Welsh Transformers or something. Like, you know, we're finally like on an even playing field with the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, wasn't there, there was that film, wasn't there, that they put loads of money into? Oh yeah, Kieran wrote film? about it. Oh, and it flopped, didn't it? Yeah, and then and then the and then the, the justification was supposedly, well, you know, it wasn't all about making money. Oh, yeah. it was about making shit films for their own sake, <laughs> was it? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I maybe gone off on uh, a bit of a tangent, but like, you know, the, the Green Knight coming out uh, now. Um is it David Lowry directed that? Um oh, I don't know. Yeah, so it's got Dev Patel in it and he plays the Green Knight, obviously like the uh, yeah, um, King Arthur Legends. But you know, that's almost I guess it's a bit perhaps difficult to make something that isn't like reductively Welsh. Um, you know, if you're making something in Wales, you know. Yeah. That, but uh, yeah, I don't think that's more like a, a quote unquote British film, I suppose. Right, that's yeah. good and, though, to be fair. And that's the, that's one of the challenges, isn't it? We've got, and a lot is talked about the sort of infrastructure here in terms of uh, attracting Mm. big film productions from outside and you know and making big things like his dark materials and doctor who and all that kind of stuff but what's that doing for us what's yeah. it really doing? i theme, mean makes it a theme park really doesn't it yeah and and you know we've got a lot of talent here always have had a lot of talent here you know i was part of the extraction of raw material you know yeah. as much as anything else you know for a long time it felt like and i always felt a lot of, a sense of guilt about it but I, you know, I, I was given all kinds of opportunities here uh, growing up in, in, in this part of Wales in, in through the sort of this extraordinary, as I've come, as I got older and I've come to realise, an extraordinary youth arts infrastructure that grew up just at the right time for me, really. Mm -hmm. You know, late 70s into the 80s. It grew out of Samfield's Comprehensive School. It grew out of one man, Godfrey Evans, coming to be the kind of, I think he was the English drama teacher in Samfield's Comprehensive School, this flagship place. And he essentially built up an incredibly progressive liberal arts infrastructure out of Samfield's Comp that then eventually became the West Glamorgan Youth Theatre, the West Glamorgan Dance Company, the orchestra, the, all, the diff, all the different things, um, all funded by through the education department. And... Um, and, 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 you know, an extraordinary people have come out of it, like Russell T. Davis and myself, you know, all kinds of people have come out of it. Um, and it was only, you know, I used to just think that that's what everyone, what everyone had. It was only when I got to drama school and I got to RADA and I was like, what? You, you haven't done any plays before. Like you, what, like you didn't have a youth theatre and you did. Uh, it was just amazing to me. And, you know, I realised that the, the opportunities I had 
that aren't there anymore. You know, all that funding is gone. All that. Yeah. I mean, the, the youth theatre still exists, but only because uh, they've 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 surviving. You know, hand to mouth year on year, and partly because I gave them money to keep going and various other people and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but seeing that that box ticking that everyone has to do in order to kind of justify as if massive success and doing extraordinary work isn't enough to justify the funding. No, no, no. You have to tick all these boxes. Um, but all, all, you know, we've had that talent, you know, people always say about me coming from Patel, but as well, Oh, Richard Burton and Anthony Hopkins and you, is there something in the water? And I then very boringly go, no, the funding for the youth arts infrastructure <laughs> in the eighties, you know, um, obviously, Hopkins was inspired by Burton coming from his town and and you know myself and actors of my generation who came from this area are also inspired by the fact that they were there and that is important because the idea of being able to see role models people who have come from your background who have made a success um knowing that that is a possibility is is as important as funding for things as well, I think. That's, and that's always why... exciting as well, isn't it? To like feel like you've not been seen, but like you've yeah. been represented. Like I remember in um, Lapita, Cast on the Sky, and it was just like, oh my God, like, you know, it's mining villages in a, yeah. a Japanese um, Japanese anime film. From well, the unbelievable, unbelievable that Miyazaki- He was there, wasn't was, he? Was here in yeah. South Wales during the miners' strike. I mean, so, I, that blows my mind. Someone's got to do a big documentary on that or something. There's something yeah. really interesting. Well, but, but yeah. But that was the, the, going to be the next question was, do you think, and you've, you've basically just answered it, but do you think that it would be easier or harder now for a young actor in Patalba to to make it based oh, on... It's, oh, it's, it's definitely harder, definitely. Yeah, because um, of the cuts. Yeah, I mean, I like I say, I, I started doing school plays at school at comprehensive school mainly because I was encouraged to by my family. So already supportive <laughs> yeah. family, family who are like going, no, we do that and we'll help you to do that. So supportive family. School that has not only school plays, but a drama department, a school that then was a, a, a drama teacher who said you should audition for the local youth theatre. Yeah. Your local youth theatre existed, well supported, well funded, with immense ambition. Um, you know, doing extra, you know, Brecht and T.S. Eliot, all kinds of yeah. amazing stuff, Czechoslovakian plays and all those, God knows what. Um, and then, and then because of that, going on to do National Youth Theatre of Wales. And then because everyone in that youth theatre was auditioning for drama schools, I was like, oh, well, I'll do that as well. And, and yeah. then getting a grant to go and all that, right, all of that, none of that exists. The school has gone, drama departments are being cut left, right and centre, school plays, you know, you're lucky if you get a school play anywhere. The youth theatre's funding has all been cut, mandatory uh, grants for going to drama school went, you know, all of that stuff has changed. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, I, I created this um, project called A Writing Chance, which was, uh, which was about trying to find and support underrepresented voices, working class voices, essentially. Uh, as writers to begin with, because I think, you know, that's where it begins. The writers are the ones who are creating the stories, reflecting the experiences. If we don't have authentic voices writing our stories, then, um, you know, it doesn't matter. The actors have got nothing to act and all the rest of it. So it starts from there. But I, I, I'm hoping that that will expand out after we do this sort of pilot year of the project. But um, uh, yeah, that, and that is about, you know, having people out there doing stuff that people who come from their sort of communities can say, oh, well, that is possible then. You know, I spoke to one of the writers who got through to the Writing Chance finalists who said, on, you know, on our council estate, being a writer 
was like saying you wanted to be an astronaut. Mm. Like there was literally nowhere to begin. You'd like, where do you, yeah. I might as well say I want to be an astronaut. Um, and having those role models, but having those pathways. So I had yeah. a pathway, a very distinct pathway, and that pathway simply doesn't exist anymore if you don't have the money to, to pay for it. It's about um, infrastructure. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> creating those pathways. And that's not just through the arts, that's through anything. You know, we have to have those pathways, don't we? I was just saying, like, you know, I was just trying to Google um, the woman's name. She she wrote in school. I think she she may have written um, Bob, Sue and Rita, too. You know, and it's... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's, um, you know, like, you know, it's important, I guess, to have those, like, kind of working class voices and stories represented. A bit yeah. like um, Fish Tank, like, that was about yeah, a few yeah. years ago. Well, I mean, you go back to the classic, you know, period of, of the, uh, what was it, the mid-50s through to, you know, mid 60s where there was just that explosion you know there was look back in anger in the theater which you know marked a sort of watershed moment and you had films like saturday night sunday morning and yeah, yeah. room at the top and um all that stuff that suddenly changed where regional accents working class lives and experiences weren't just the kind of quirky little characters on the periphery of the story they were at the front and center of it and the, suddenly the story the national story that we told ourselves as as Britain and as United Kingdom, yeah, yeah. Um, that conversation started to you started to hear voices in that conversation that you just never heard in yeah. the national. And the story that we started to tell about ourselves was more representative. And people suddenly felt like, oh, this is something for me then as well. I can get involved in this. And this explosion of culture happened in our country, and it changed all kinds of things. Um, and I think for a long time, I felt like, well, that's just happened. That's happened and we will never go back. You know, we're just, it's just a, a continual yeah. arrow through history now, you know, on that. And um, and then you start to realize, no, it can go back as well. Yeah. It can it can regress and that, and that tide can go back out again. It doesn't stay, you know, where it was unless you fight for it, unless you're prepared to, to, to do something. And, you know, just look at what, after the Second World War and, and the, the new sort of social compact that was made and the, the whole new way of looking at how we live together happened. Again, you sort of want to hope that, and, and I think a lot of us, certainly I did, took it for granted that, that that wouldn't have to be fought again. Like that happened. We had that and we build on it and we move forward by building on these brilliant things. But um, obviously that's, uh, that proves not to be the case. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, it's like, as you said, it's basically like starting from scratch. <laughs> or even worse than starting from scratch. It's interesting because, uh, you know, one of the, the people in the, in, who are in the book, uh, Professor Rachel Howells, who yeah. I had I'd been working with off and yeah. on for, for quite a while um, around journalism and local yeah, journalism. Yeah, the collapse. Yeah, and all that. Um, and one of the concepts that she introduced me to was this idea of zombie newspapers. Mm. So, you know, there's, <laughs> on, on the one hand, you've got, you know, total collapse of local journalism, you know, in, in Patel, but in 1971, there were, I think there were like, you know, multiple newspapers, yeah, yeah. With reporters all based within the town and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and slowly that was all eradicated. And now there's no reporters in the town. There's no local newspapers and any news that gets reported in the town is if you're lucky coming from Swansea, if not Bristol, and if not, then London, you know, um, and the idea that, um, that some areas just don't have any newspapers, but some do, and some have newspapers that, you know, for, for, for all intents and purposes, people go, well, there's a local newspaper, but actually it's just adverts and, you know, bits of writing in it are just from press releases from, you know, um, 
institutions within the area. There's no local voices represented. There's no uh, power being held to account. There's no accurate information about the community. going. And so you have a newspaper, but it's a zombie newspaper. So you have the trappings, the illusion of something that's you know worthwhile and meaningful, but actually and when you look inside, there's nothing there. Yeah, yeah. Now that's about newspapers, but the danger is that as a country, we become like that, yeah. that we have the trappings of democracy, but when so few people actually turn out to vote, yeah. is that really democracy? We have the, the, the trappings of a, of a government that want, want people to know what's going on, but most people don't know what's devolved. Most people don't know what's at stake because our public sphere, are, are the platforms for us to have these sorts of conversations about our country are so few and far between. So you've got an electorate who are either, you know, essentially disenfranchised because they're not voting um, and it's incredibly difficult to get the information that you would need to make an informed decision anyway about it. And there is this kind of double speak thing going on where, where the government says it's doing one thing, um, but actually it's, it, it, its policies seem to tell a different story. Um, so with all of that going on, the danger is that it, it looks like a sort of progressive, um, forward thinking, socially conscious country that's doing radical things. But you tap the surface, you get through the surface, and actually it's a very different story underneath. That's the danger, isn't it? Like they live, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Brilliant film, they, they live. Some big, <laughs> some big questions now, Mike. What piece of work, you know, are you most proud of? And, and it could be anything, you know, from a film or a play to even... A recent podcast you've appeared on. Yeah, obviously excluding this episode, you know, but like, you know, <laughs> look, I know it's a, it's a big question, but is there one... Hmm. Anything you've done that you think you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I mean, when I did The Passion, when I when that finished, I was like, I it doesn't matter what I do for the rest of my life now. Yeah. I, I did something. I did something yeah. that I am yeah. proud of and that I think was worthwhile and meaningful. And, um, and, and I know that this is the high point of my artistic life. And, and I'm fine with that. I will never yeah. do anything as good as that again. And that's fine because I got to do it. Um, so, so from that point of view, like a, as a big picture thing, there's that. In terms of me as an actor, well, I mean, one of the films that I most uh, that I'm most proud of is Damned United because I suppose it brought together two sides of my life: football and yeah. acting. You know, I was I was I was obsessed with football. All that's all I wanted to do growing up, and I, and I was you know pretty good when I was twelve. Um, it was all downhill from there. But uh, but being able to bring together football and acting and to play a character who was such a uh, yeah, uh, an an interesting, compelling, contradictory character, and one who was so loved as well. You know, that was they playing those real people is sort of terrifying because you think, especially in the case of someone like Clough, who is revered still and sort of mm. idolized still, and, and rightfully so, in for all kinds of reasons. Although he's, there are all kinds of problems with him as well, but. Um, you know, that's the one that taxi drivers will talk to me about. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the one that that you know in the pub people will say something. And that's and I knew that that would be the case potentially. And so you you've got a lot of scope to fuck it up. You know, <laughs> that is a difficult thing to get right. So you know, I I, I feel proud of a lot of those hmm. real life characters I've played because I know how difficult or how easy it would be to get it wrong. And I feel like I did, you know, I didn't, I wasn't just doing an impersonation. I was trying yeah. to actually play someone that people would believe, believe that I was them, but it was more about the story and the, and the, and the thing. So I'm, 
Sorry. generally proud of those. I was just saying, off the back of that, how did he manage to nail the Chris Tarrant like impression so much? Because <laughs> like, I was watching it and like, you know, it's just, well, you know, it's just like seamless almost. Well, I mean, it's the hair, really. The hair <laughs> do does to, a lot of do, work. Yeah, do you practice a lot or is it just like... Like the inflections of like, you know... Yeah, well, what not, I found... Not, not to be like inside the actor's studio or anything. Uh, no, no, yeah. <laughs> um, well, what I found over time is that if I start trying to just sound like the person too early, then it's it, it, it short it shorts the circuit somehow. Like it, yeah. it so I have it's to like, I have to really resist doing that because obviously the first thing I want to do is like if you can get the voice right, then you feel like yeah. oh, people you, you've sort of done it. Then, but so actually, there's a worry of being a parody almost. Is it? Yeah, the, the danger is if you start from that too early then it never goes any deeper you know it, it stays very surface and so i've always tried to keep off that the, the tarrant thing was 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 quite difficult in a different way because he wasn't the main character i've normally no. played these people when they're the main characters in the thing you know so you get a lot more screen time get a lot more time to work on it whereas the tarrant one it was you know it was very much a supporting part um and uh, so i didn't have as long to work on it so that was quite scary in its own way as well but it was but it was just through watching I just watch and watch and watch and watch and watch until certain things it's like white noise to begin with mm, yeah. just looking at someone each person every human being is so complicated there's so much complexity going on and contradictions and all kinds of stuff going on and that's what you want to get to and what but when you first start looking at people and the information they're giving off about themselves consciously and unconsciously it's so much it's overwhelming so i just have to watch and listen and watch and listen until slowly things start to emerge little things start to stand out and uh, and those are the things i hang on to and once i can sort of get those things they're like the little you know the the, the hooks you can hang on to once I and then I can then internalize those and then I can start doing the external stuff because it's coming from somewhere then do you know you got to get Daniel yeah sorry yeah got to get in the mind of Tarrant yeah <laughs> the mind of Tarrant yeah. is a scary place to be I mean be, I mean the passion was I'll always remember it, I'll never forget it is just a genuinely incredible experience as someone who was you know when we were watching it in the in in the crowd and just seeing like the whole of the sand fields, people were just there in the front gardens. People were just drinking. I, I've just, it was just a truly unique experience, you know, yeah. either in t- t- for it to be so embedded in the community is almost, yeah, just, I can't think of anything that comes, comes close to it. It was a real, just a visceral, total yeah. experience in terms of like, yeah, it, it was, it was like, <laughs> I mean, like, I think, I guess it was, it's the same vibe as what would have happened, you know, what would have happened? It, it... Well, it was, it was, it was, I was trying to do a lot of things and some of them I said at the time that I was trying to do and other things I didn't say because it would have sounded so wanky. Yeah. You know, I would have been. Well, say them now because this is. I'd have been crucified. <laughs> um, but what I, one of the things I was trying to do was to see if you could create, I mean, I was, I was sort of trying to go back to how drama got created in the first place. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the sort of Greek, the origins of theater, I suppose, as far as I understand, were about two dist- two main elements. One was a community coming together to to share what its values are, to, re- to as a sort of a as a reminder, as a way of kind of keeping the bonds of of, of community to go. Here are the things that we find important. Isn't it? Yeah, and and but within that is a shared, a shared experience yeah. of like this is who we are. This is what matters to us. Then there's another element 
that was a, a mystery, something mysterious, that you come together and something happens that no one can quite put their finger on and, and mm. say what it is, but something, you enter a mystery then. And so the mystery yeah. plays, uh, you know, hence they get their name and that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to see if there was a way to, to, to do a piece of theater that was, because originally, you know, National Theatre Wales said to me, we're interested in doing things that are more embedded in community and and maybe pushing the envelope a bit in what a theatre space can be. So I sort of ran with that. Um, but the idea, so it wasn't just a bit of community theatre. It was like, can I tell a story or can a, a whole town tell a story about itself? And can we break down what the area is between participation and witness, like participation and audience? So I wanted to see if there was a way to tell a story where as the story was being told by a community, for the community, that there was a certain point at which the community would go, oh, this is ours, actually. Yeah, like, yeah. we thought we were coming to see Michael Sheen doing a play, but actually with it's us we're doing this and there yeah. was a moment on the saturday so it began early friday morning and finished sunday night but there was a moment on saturday night where the manics had been playing in the the labor club we yeah. had our sort of um uh, last supper type thing and people because we could only get about 150 people or something in the the the, the seaside social club to to watch the what happened in there all the other people were outside in the car park and we would put a big screen up and a bar and they'd been there for hours and hours and hours. So by the time we came out to do the bit that was outside the Labour Club at about, I can't remember, it was about eight, nine o'clock at night or something, people were, they'd been drinking for a while and the weather, <laughs> it'd been really hot and they'd been watching the Mannix. You know, it was, it was a real sense of euphoria. And then we, yeah. did, we did this sort of equivalent of when Jesus was you know, put on trial and uh and uh so we were on the back of a flat i was on the back of a flatbed truck in the car park surrounded by literally thousands of quite drunk hysterical <laughs> people and um and it got sort of whipped up yeah and we had my old drama teacher from glenavon comprehensive school ken tucker who was playing the mayor of the town was up on the top of a scaffolding tower sort of pontificating and you know adjudicating the the trial and all that kind of stuff and he said he told me afterwards that he genuinely feared for his life because people were shaking the scaffolding <laughs> people were about to riot there were a yeah, few yeah. people who said michael if you had said let's go now it would have kicked off and i ended up being taken in the back of a police van to the liberty stadium and i spent the night in the cell there but it was like but that moment of of genuine danger where yeah. the crowd, the audience were like, no, this is our story. We're, yeah, we're yeah. in charge of this. It was re it really teetered on the edge. And that was one of the things that, again, I hadn't said that to anyone, but I had hoped for a moment. Like, yeah. I didn't expect it to potentially involve the death of my old drama teacher. But yeah, yeah. I, that, that, that sense of something happening. Now this is theatre. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> that thing of, Just <laughs> throwing the guy to death. Like. <laughs> the lines being blurred between yeah. what, is, what is performance and what is, you know, just yeah, yeah. watching something. Um, and that was part of it. And, 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 and the idea of, um, you know, the weather was so good that weekend as well, which obviously helped it. We, when, we, when it began, there was only about, you know, a hundred or so people on the beach at six o'clock that morning or whatever. But by Sunday night, there were thousands yeah, and thousands yeah. of people around that roundabout. It was mental. And people were just streaming in from all over the place. And we were hearing about it being reported on in Australia and China and all these sort of things. It was an extraordinary experience. And to have, 
to have people in the in the town themselves. I'll, I'll always remember when I was carrying the cross, you know, through the town, and uh, and just blokes, you know, with you know tops off because it was hot, pints in their hands, shouting, "Go on, Michael! Go on, Michael!" <laughs> Poor son. <laughs> And you think, what is this that we're doing? What, yeah. what, what has this become? I, I'm not sure, but it, it was amazing. It was absolutely, and, and it was life-changing and transformative mm. for me in all kinds of ways. You know, like I say, I, I was happy after that to go, I don't care what I do for the rest yeah, of yeah. the I've done it. I've done it. But also it then, I didn't know at the time necessarily, I was aware that something was kind of, something was different. My awareness of the town that yeah, I grew yeah. up in was changing through working on that piece there. Um, but I, I didn't realise that, you know, it would essentially lead to me coming and living back here again yeah. and and taking a very different turn in my life and, you know, doing what I do now, which is essentially I, I act to earn the money to spend on other things, you know, to so support. Do you think that was the point then when you, you was it at the doing the passion where you decide you first decided I'm going to, I'm going to come back the experiences of, well, I wasn't aware of that then, but I can trace it back to that. Definitely. Yeah. 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 It, 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 something started then where, like I say, the connections that I made with a lot of different organizations and charities and, you know, third sector groups and all that kind of stuff, essentially the people who are doing the, 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 the real dirty work of community, um, looking after people. I mean, that was the idea behind the passion was, you know, you look at the story of Christ and his ministry or whatever, you know, yeah. it's about looking after the poor and the marginalized and the and the sick and, the, you know, all the all the things that we do in our community, all the things mm-hmm. that those groups do in our community. And I was like, well, I'd, I'm not going to tell a story about a man who does that. There are people already doing that in this community. So let's tell that story. So the yeah. Jesus figure didn't do anything. He just listened. He'd lost his memory. He was a blank slate. He just listened yeah. to the others, you know, and, and so it was about them. And so by being connected to those groups, you know, the first thing that happens is people go, will you, will you have a photograph taken? Can we put yeah, this yeah, photograph yeah. on your web, our website? And so there's, you know, there's that level of engagement, which is very small, really. Um, but that grew and grew and grew until eventually I realized I don't want to just be putting my name to things or having yeah, photographs yeah. taken. I want to get more involved in this. And it grew and grew over the years to the point where I realized I can't keep this up. It's it's like literally it's like having two full time jobs. I can't yeah, yeah. keep doing. It. So one thing is going to have to take a step back. Um, and I didn't want to step back from that side of things. So I realized, well, the acting has to take a different place. I'm not, it's not going to take a step back. Well, at first I thought maybe I'll stop acting as much. I won't do as much of it in order to have the time to do other stuff. But then I realized, <laughs> no, I only get to do the other stuff because of the acting. Nobody's yeah. particularly interested in me turning up if I'm not, <laughs> you know, still doing films and theater and stuff. So I realized the balance had to be right. But my attitude towards the acting was that um, that is now, that now pays for everything else. So the, the amount of time and engagement, I, like I said, I didn't want to just be putting my name to things. I wanted to be actually creating things and and tackling problems and or being part of trying to tackle the challenges and getting involved more in the things that I think are unfair and that I think are wrong with the society. Rather than just shouting about it, I wanted to actually do something about it. Well, we were actually quite worried because when he came back, it was like on top of acting, TV appearances, you know, and plays, it was like, He's involved, he, like, he's involved himself in loads of activism. You know, he's doing like writing stuff. He's doing the Homeless World Cup. And, you know, now you've had a new, a little baby. And, but basically it seemed like, you know, obviously when you came back, everyone wanted a piece of you. I find it very difficult to do, you know, more than one. If I've had a day at work, 
I'm not going to do. I'm not going to go to the gym. I can't do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I remember seeing you in the homeless world cup, and like you know, obviously people are just like coming up to you for photos and stuff, and that you sort of put on. And you just like genuinely seem like genuinely happy. Whereas if it was me, I'd be like, I'm going to kill someone. I'd be so overwhelmed. <laughs> um, but well, you know, at, I the mean, whole, at the homeless world cup, it was because I was so relieved. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, I mean that. Euphoria, like. God, so we story. Were, so we were going to ask, you know, is there hmm. is there a secret? Like, do you do yoga? Um, have you got like some Hollywood like lizard? Uh, yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> you you got like a cryogenic <laughs> chamber that you go in. <laughs> Or do you just do, uh, do you just do loads of drugs? Like, is it what? Are... <laughs> well, I think I mean I think it's 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 genuinely that if if you're in if you're if you're engaged, the more engaged I am, the happier I am. To be honest, I mean it is it is full on. It's like I, yeah. I am doing essentially two full time jobs, yeah. and that involves having to have other people help me with that, you know, as well, in order to kind of facilitate that and enable enable that to happen. But it it is a lot, but. You know, it's tiring and all that, and I have to be careful about that, especially as I'm getting older. But it is so energizing. Mm. I mean, that, that, that the the immense privilege of being able to do stuff that that is meaningful to me, you know, and that mm. and that makes me feel like I've got I'm I'm doing something worthwhile. If you you know anyone who feels like they get the opportunity to feel like that in what they do, you know, I'm not, and this is not to put down any kind of form of work but you know i'm, I'm doing something that i'm passionate about yeah. that engages me fully and totally and that i have um resource to be able to use to do it now that that makes me happy you know i think at this point in life i'm 52 now or whatever um you want to say we can lot... beat that out if you want yeah, <laughs> yeah. i'm 26. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am 26. Um, but at this point in, in life, I think a lot of people can start to feel like, what, what's, what am I doing? What, yeah, oh, this is a waste. Midlife crisis and, time. Yeah, and all that kind of stuff. And um, I don't feel any of that. I feel like life is just sort of starting. Like, I, I, I feel like there's not enough time. There's so much I want to do. There's so much more. I was never bothered about money. And that's, mm. you know, it's only the ones people who have money, I suppose, who can feel like they're not bothered. About. But, you know, you know, I, I you know, I, I, my background was not affluent in any way. But, you know, I, I, by the time I started working then, by the time I left drama, you know, I, in drama school, I lived like every other student, you know, in a shit heap but by the time i started working i was earning okay money from the beginning really yeah, yeah. um and so i was never but it, it, you know I, I i wasn't out to make more money now i am because yeah. now i've got something to spend it on <laughs> you know i mean now I, I actively want to 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 use the money that i earn to, to 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 try and make a difference it's you know i'm sort of trying to do my own version of redistribution i suppose um what happened with the um the homeless world, the homeless, uh, what happened with the homeless world cap you I, I just cut you off there because um there were all these rumors like michael sheen's bankrupted himself paying for the homeless world cap. yeah that's that's essentially what happened yeah we were going to give you like some patreon money like just to help you out yeah yeah i mean that's the, the funny Relax. thing is of course sorry michael but we yeah well i mean it's it, it, we joke about it but actually at one point, I owed so much money, so much money. What happened with it? Like, uh... So the guy that um, was uh, helping me with it, who I'd been working with for a long time, it, who was supposed to be doing the fundraising, um, with eight weeks to go, uh, and uh, everyone under the belief that there was um, a million and a half 
there in the bank paying for everything with work already being done and all kinds of stuff going on. Turned out there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. And not only was there no money to pay for anything uh, that was coming up, (coughs) there was no money to pay for anything that had already been done. And oh so the, 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 the big danger was that it would all, I mean, I think everyone yeah. just assumed, well, it's going to, it can't happen now. You'll have to call yeah, it yeah. off and you'll have to find a way to pay for and do damage limitation, all that kind of stuff. And I just wasn't prepared to do that. So I had to try and keep everyone on board because there was a lot of different partners who were involved in delivering it. And um, I had to try and instill the confidence in everyone to not bail. And actually talking about bail, um, he didn't help. No. <laughs> didn't he? Not one football, not one Welsh footballer who was approached gave Shocking. anything towards it. Yeah, really, um, that's so disappointing. Yeah, yeah really. He's, he's, uh, he's marked on your list now, though. Isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but um, so I, I, I was just sitting there going, there are, you know, there are whatever it was, five hundred of some, you know, people from all around the world who have gone through shit, yeah, yeah. who have had a shit life on the whole, and are going through a really difficult time. And this, I know, this experience can be transformative for people not for everyone but you know for some people can have a completely transformative experience through being involved in this kind of thing and um and i was like i'm not letting that happen so i had all kinds of advice coming at me well michael don't put a penny of your own money into this this is about you know you can get a pr person to help you deal with the fall and i was just like no that's not happening and um, and so i was like right let's put everything I've got into this. So I put everything that was in my bank account in just to have a kind of a float to be able to pay for literally the things that had to happen day after day. And meanwhile, in order to for the money to come down to be able to pay for the things as we got closer to it, because the bigger ticket items came sort of closer to the to the time, I put the house that I live in here um, up. And then, and I also had to put, so I have the house that I lived in in America for years and years and years, which I hadn't sold yet. Um, I put up as well, I remortgaged. And so both houses went up and all the money that I had in the in bank account went in. And I went asking for money from friends and everyone I came across. And, um, and we, you know, and ultimately I managed to prove to um, the other partners that there was a fairly good chance of the money coming and that it would happen. Um, and then it was just a lot of people working very hard to, to, to make it happen. And, and I'm amazed. And that's why when you saw me at the Homeless World Cup, I went around with a big smile on my face was because I never thought that would happen. Yeah. Sounds like oh, um, fun an apocalypse now, doesn't it? Francis <laughs> yeah. Capella was just like, I'm going to shoot myself. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? But that was, and that was transformative as, way, as well in a lot of ways because what it proved to me was I mean, I would never want to go through that again, and I would never want to be in such an extreme place. But what it did prove to me was the reason why I felt I was prepared to do that was because I thought I I I, I have a capacity to earn money. Hmm. You know, I'm I, I'm 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 willing to take this risk to make something happen that I believe in and that I think is important, and I'm willing to take that risk because the chances are that I'll be able to pay for all this. And because I also had to create deals with people in order to pay over years. So I still owe large amounts of money. Like I, 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 I'm not from bright house or something. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure (laughs) if right at this moment, I'm not sure if I still 
if I'm still completely in debt or not. But I have, I, for a while, I had nothing. I mean, I was massively in debt. I just was banking on the... Actually homeless, like. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I felt like, well, in I my circumstances, you know, in my present circumstances, I've got a place to live. I've, I've you know, I can, yeah, yeah. I, I can keep earning money. Obviously, when the pandemic hit, I was like, shit. Yeah. My whole plan was that I was going to be able to earn money to pay back things over the next few years. But uh, but anyway, that's why I kept working through the pandemic. But yeah, but I, I realized, no, I can I can do this. I don't have to. I, I, there's a different way of me being able to have a relationship to what I earn here. Yeah, yeah. And it just it just takes committing to it. It just takes going, yeah, I can do it. And I know it won't exist forever. That window of opportunity won't exist forever. But the chances are it's not going to dry up overnight and I'll be able to realize when things are slowing down. But for a yeah. chunk of time, <laughs> I can earn good money. And so I can put things in motion and pay for things and, and, and you know, risk take more risk um when it comes to paying for the sorts of things that i believe in and that i want to see change it was transformative i mean i work with lads who actually played for the wales team and it's something that they you know you, you can just every time you talk about it in the same way that you know you said the passion was like yeah yeah i've done this now and for some of those lads to be able to say i put on the national jersey and played for wales in football that's something that you'll never no one ever yeah do. Do you know what i mean it's an achievement that um yeah and for that for that period of time, yeah. all those players, whether they were the Welsh players or from wherever they were in the world, they weren't homeless no. people or refugees. No, they experience. were football. They were football players. Mm. That was people, amazing. Kids were coming up and asking for their autographs. I remember yeah. someone saying to me, "Someone just came up from and asked me for my autograph." When you're being, when you've been sitting outside, you know, on Cardiff High Street, and yeah. people are fucking pissing on you or yeah. chucking things at you or whatever. Uh, and then someone's asking for your autograph. That that must be very you know? surreal in a sense, That's isn't huge. it? Just like kind of you know to experience some of both things, and you know. Well, yeah. one of the psych one of the psychological aspects of homelessness is you know being being ignored. I mean, imagine being yeah. yeah all, as you said, Mike, all day every day. If you're begging, for example, or even if you go into a, a supermarket, you'll be followed around by a security guard or whatever. If you've got a bag, yeah. Uh, the, the cumulative psychological effects of being not, not sort of othered, but you know, being yeah, like less than human is is just unbelievably yeah. And when people do, so, when people do give you money, it's sort of like it's usually um, around uh, the idea with you know, but you can only use it for this and this and this. Yes, yeah, when yeah. when when I get my wages, nobody tells yeah. me this is what you got to spend it on and this is what you got to do. So that's one of the other things I'm working on at the moment is is around direct cash transfers and yeah, yeah. tailored budgets and that kind of stuff, personalized tailored budgets and that kind of stuff. Kind of stuff because i mean this is the other thing and this and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier but when it comes to issues like poverty and homelessness and you know all that kind of stuff are you trying you i think people need to be very clear about what they're trying to do are you trying to solve it or are you just trying to manage it because by managing it you create an industry around it that that it's in a lot of people's interests for it not to be solved you know i think we could um, do another episode on the, and we i've actually tried i've emailed a canadian academic who's writing about what she calls a poverty industry from a left yeah. perspective which is very important because i think in the uk and wales it's kind of like you know it's, it's only the right to critique that infrastructure but as someone who's worked in that infrastructure you do realize exactly what you said like there is do people really want to solve this stuff or yeah it's and again it's from it's from it's a it's an awareness that grows from actually talking to people where you see people who are working within that infrastructure that poverty infrastructure people who are just giving 
massive <coughs> amounts of their life and time and energy and spirit and soul and heart to this stuff. And it's just not going anywhere. Like yep. it's, just, it's just wearing people down and pushing them to the edge. And you think, so when's the day where this can yeah. stop them? When does this, when does yeah, the breakthrough, when people are just, yeah, I, it's it's so hard to see people doing that, whether they're on, no matter which side of it they're on, you know, whether they're on the side yeah, yeah. of actually going through the experiences or people trying to help people going through the experiences. It's, it wears people down so much. And I, and it, and I, it sort of really frustrates me when I see how much of trying to deal with that stuff involves sitting in meeting rooms, mm. having meetings and assessments and all that kind of stuff. It's just full on. And I'm not entirely sure that that helps, to be honest. We're going to do the serious questions now. Yeah. Do you want me to start? <laughs> Go on then, Nate. Okay, so off the back of that, um, Michael, have yeah. you met Have you met Kurt Russell? <laughs> I have. Have you? Uh, I have. Yeah, because... I want him to adopt me. Because I worked with his daughter. Um, All right. Uh, Kate. Hudson. Oh, yeah. And, I um, forget. Um, yeah. Yeah, on Four Feathers. And at some, at some do, uh, I, I met him. Yeah. Oh, the man. Was, was, was waiting for. Oh, yeah. 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 Although I have to say, um, you know, Jeff Bridges was. was the, ah, uh, yeah. He's yeah. almost like the stoner Kurt Russell, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Well, well, do you have any hero? Yeah. Well, this is the next question. You, do you have any heroes in the acting world um, or otherwise? And who was your inspiration as an actor growing up? Well, when I was you got uh, any inspirations now? Yeah, when I was when I was a when I was a kid, when I was first getting into acting, the first sort of hero I had was Laurence Olivier, and mm. it wasn't from because I never saw him act on stage or anything like that, but it was from reading stuff that um, Kenneth Tynan, who was a famous theatre critic, um, had written about Olivier's stage performances. Um, it just really inspired me. I just found the description, probably, probably more exciting than if I'd seen him on stage, maybe, but the description yes. of it, this guy was brilliant writing about great performance. Mm. I would urge people to read um, a book of his called uh, Profiles, which are just essays on lots of different performers from Morecambe and Wise, to Laurence Olivier, to you know Noel Coward, yeah. all kind. You know, he, he was he was sort of one of the first people to really push the idea of of what would be known as low culture and high culture. You know, mixing yeah, yeah. it up and going the 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 brilliance of 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 the performance of Eric Morecambe is on a par with anyone in any artistic form. You know, yeah. and that was very inspiring to me. Um, so in a way, a weird way, Olivier and Tynan were like a hero. Yeah. Then when I got to drama school, it was De Niro. Was yeah. watching De Niro. You know, I was first starting to watch Scorsese films. Used to go to La Scala, um, the the cinema in King's Cross there and, and watch uh, Taxi Driver. I remember seeing a double bill of Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. Ah, oh, class. Just yeah. going home, like my, literally my mind blown by watching that. So that was De Niro. And then it was like Daniel Day-Lewis watching, uh, you know, um, my left foot, and uh, uh, you know all those amazing uh, films. That he, what was the what was the one uh, uh, the father one about, about um, in the name of the father? When in the name in of the father. Yeah. I was going to say Bill Be Blood. <laughs> <laughs> They're all about, yeah, about the good father. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Day Lewis was he was the first actor that I watched where I felt like to say how good his performance is is to do a disservice to what he's done mm. because he's so. Encompassed yeah. by the character and the story, it's all in service of the character yeah. and the story. So then, to talk about, oh, isn't he a good actor? Felt yeah. like, and I think that inspired me to 
to see how far you could go with that in a way to go how much can you disappear into it how much can yeah, you yeah. can you be you know not almost not noticed and and, and to not want people to talk about it good can i say way. off the back of that and i don't mean as, as a disservice to this person but I, I i'd seen um the revenant four times and i think I on the revenant. fourth time yeah i was like oh yeah it's leonardo dicaprio i didn't actually <laughs> no i didn't actually think he was playing a character i just saw right, leonardo right. dicaprio in the, and then like yeah I feel a bit bad saying that. I've seen other stuff and like, he does Well, they always say, don't they, there's, sometimes, there's yeah. two different types of actors. There's the actor who brings the character to them and then there's the actor who goes to the character. And, and you know, on the whole, the people who become bigger stars are the ones who bring the characters to them yeah. because people tend to want to yeah, have see. what they already know they like. So you don't want people to be too yeah. different, do you, in a way? What's been your worst experience or period as, a, as an actor? Have you had anyone like you know? This podcast high, not included. Yeah, but if the high, if, if the high point is the passion, what's yeah. been you know you're like for for various reasons what hasn't been particularly enjoyable or something that's bad that's happened. I. You don't have to name names if you don't. Yeah, no, no. There, well, as a as a general period of time, yeah, yeah. There was a period of time when, so I. You know, so I, moved, I, I went to live in, or I, over a period of time, ended up living in Los Angeles because me and my partner had broken up, and our daughter, you know, was growing up in LA. So, you know, in order to be with her, I needed to be there, and I, I, I only had a tourist visa. I was just, you know, I didn't have a work yeah, visa, yeah. so I had to kind of come in and out of. Uh, yeah. America and the UK back and forth never knowing if I came in <laughs> America whether they'd say you're coming in a lot and you know and if I was yeah, stopped yeah. from coming in so that was a scary period of time but also as I was spending longer and longer periods of time in LA it was at a point in my life as well where my career was like taking off like mm. as a as a as a I was doing a lot of theater stuff and I'd sort of got you know quite high up as a young actor in theater in Britain and I was starting to do the odd bit of film not much but you know the odd bit of thing and tv and stuff um but I only really wanted to do theater and and so I, I got a name for myself and and then I found myself in LA and having to audition for you know um computer geek number two <laughs> in oh. aliens versus predator or yeah, you know yeah. and finding myself really caring about this and really mm. and thinking i could be back at home playing hamlet now mm. and here i am having to do this stuff and i remember you know sitting in uh, uh, waiting rooms to audition for something and there'd be one of the goss brothers who was auditioning for stuff as well at the time and i, I just just kind of thinking what am i doing what am i doing mm. it was a it was a kind of a low point where being away from i mean that was when i started to really really feel like i miss the culture that i come from i, yeah, I yeah. Nothing, nothing against this place in america but yeah it's not for me i need to be around people who have sort of shared experiences and shared history and shared references and that really started to really weigh on me and and um uh, and and feeling like the kind of surface that people always talk about with LA really started to get to me where I could feel value shifting inside of me. Mm. Like I could really yeah, genuinely yeah. start to feel my focus becoming too much on things that really shouldn't matter, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that sense of being adrift, I think <laughs> was quite, was quite difficult. It was a general period of time. Um, specific job that was difficult was when I did the third thing as Blair, which was called yeah. the special relationship. And, um, that was, that was tough because 
it had started off that um, Peter Morgan, who who had written a lot of the things that I had I'd been able to be involved in, including the Queen and Frost Nixon and Damned Delighted and all those things, um, he had he was writing this one about Blair and Clinton was the idea. But the the sense of it was that it was about looking at why Blair did what he did over Iraq. Yeah. But the but the the story of why he did that would. Peter believed was in his relationship with Clinton and Kosovo yeah. and Clinton's hands being tied because of the Lewinsky stuff and, yeah. and Blair being able to step up onto the world stage and in, and his interventionism in places like Kosovo being kind of lauded and him feeling like he could uh, alter American yeah. uh, uh, policy and that kind of stuff. And, and so it was that story and it, it was, you know, fascinating story, but Peter was going to, originally Peter said that he, he wanted to direct it. Um, and then uh, it got to the point where Peter got quite ill and had to sort of move away from the project. And all the people who had said, oh, this is gonna be the same team again, who did the, the deal and the queen, you know, they just weren't really around. And I was mm -hmm. sort of last man standing a little bit going, yeah. um, uh, can I jump ship as well? And yeah. that I'd be sued if I jumped ship. Yeah. And then other people doing rewrites on it and rewrites coming in and going, hang on, are these Peter's rewrites? Where are these rewrites yeah. coming from? And it just being such a stressful time. Um, that was, that was a, that, as a project, that was yeah. the one that was the, the most stressful in that respect. I was going to say, sorry, around that time, I think you, you mentioned it before. Did you meet Joe Turkle, the guy who played um, Lloyd the Bartender yes. in Shining? And in Blade Runner. Yeah, and played Tyrell in Blade yeah. Runner. Yeah, I used to sit in that period of time that I was talking about in LA, yeah, where I was sort of just, you know, a bit adrift. There was a, a fantastic diner down the road yeah. for me called Izzy's Diner. And I used to essentially sit in Izzy's Diner all day from breakfast through to evening meal. Um, drinking a lot of coffee and reading Stephen King novels and just sort of hanging out in there. And, and I used to see Joe Turkle in there. Like I would see him sitting on his own sometimes or chatting to people in there. And one day it just so happened that, I mean, I sort of knew that the table he sat at. So one day I got there and he wasn't there and I just sat at the table next to that one. And he came in and he sat down. And so, you know, eventually, and I, I think I was reading a script or something. He was like, oh, you an actor? Yeah. I, I was an actor too. And then I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and then we had this like amazing conversation. It was great. Oh, amazing. So I guess that's why you almost embodied him in um, Passengers, didn't you? Yeah, that was, there was certainly a, a bit of that. Yeah, was inspired by um, by him in The Shining. Yeah, they, they did. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but on the carpet on the floor of the bar in Passengers is a total inversion of the carpet yes, in I The Shining. Yeah, yeah, they just inverted the colors. Yes. It's oh, cause I remember growing up watching The Shining, and then like you watch as a teenager and it's frightening, and then you watch it again when you're older, and it, it's not really, it's more about like other stuff. But like mm. now, it just seems like almost everywhere in a sense. You know, every time you see a, a, a hallway shop, it's that Kubrick, yeah, yeah. you know, frame, and like the carpet's absolutely everywhere, or you know, it's <laughs> yeah. just so kind of iconic in a sense, isn't well, it? Well, he was, I mean, Kubrick was, uh, he was one of the you know, great artists of the last however many hundred years, I think, working in any medium. And and so he was, I think part of the reason why The Shining has, has had that kind of influence on on culture 
is because he was getting at like real mm. unconscious things, collective unconscious things. The fact like that the he changed. Yeah. yeah, he changed in the, I mean, famously Stephen King didn't like the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. like the, the topiary that Stephen King describes in the book, uh, Kubrick changed to a, a labyrinth, a maze, you know, and that, you know, he's clearly playing with the idea of the Minotaur and the maze and fathers yeah. and sons and fathers actually wanting to kill their sons. And, you know, he's playing with those mythical archetypal elements in a way that, uh, that but in a really accessible way. So he's making a very entertaining, you know, psychological thriller or whatever, but, um, but he's, he's playing with those deep primal things in us. And so it stays around those things press our buttons and they they hang around you know i mean it's What's like you're right? talking about a film that changes over time mm. i always use well like one of my favorite films of all time is close encounters and when i was a kid close encounters terrified me when the first time i ever watched it it absolutely terrified me and then when i was a bit older like you know teenager or in my early 20s it started to kind of make me think of like He's the artist. He's the artist with a vision, you know, making the, the mashed potato into the town. You know, he's, he's obsessed with this artistic vision and he, and he, and he sac sacrifices his family. He loses his family for it and he loses everything. But ultimately, he gives himself to this artistic vision. And then getting older again, you start to see it as a kind of a spiritual journey almost. You know, there's going up into the spaceship at the end is like death. And, you know, it's a sort of ascension, a, isn't it? Like, yeah. Well, and, literal, and, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so I love that, that, you know, you think of films as being unchanging. It's committed to film. That's it. But because we change, we're constantly yeah. changing. Then our relationship to films changes as, as well. Like we mentioned, there'll be blood earlier. And like, I've seen that a few times now. And each time it's just, I, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson is almost like, uh, you know, like top, top Hollywood director. Well, I wouldn't maybe not say Hollywood director, but you know, just terms yeah. of like top of his craft and so on. Um, but like watching that again, you'd be like, oh yeah, it's about a guy who finds out. I was like, and you watch again, like, oh no, it's about the birth of capitalism yeah. and like <laughs> yeah. objectivism and yeah. like what? Or it's like this Kubrick horror about the oil industry's birth. Such a difficult line, isn't it? Obviously to, to be someone who is making serious art, like mm. serious works of art. And yet at the same time within the commercial yeah, sort yeah. Of, uh, context, you know, that how, how you do that is really tough. And you can see how people like, you know, I'm always amazed when you hear that, you know, Scorsese can't get the money to make his next. Yeah. Movie or something. You think like, how can that be possible? I always remember when I did the Ridley Scott film, uh, Kingdom of Heaven. And I remember, and his last film was Gladiator, I think. And I yeah. remember him saying, like, he, he, you know, he had to make certain casting decisions and certain kind of decisions in order to get the money to make the film. And you think, <clears throat> even Ridley Scott is not able to make the film. Say, isn't that the same with Woody Allen? Like, he has to go to, like, Europe to get funding and Well, I think there's a whole bunch of it. You know, Altman was the same, wasn't he? And <laughs> David Lynch is the same. Yeah. And there's a there's a, a group of sort of auteurs then, I suppose, yeah. who, who essentially do a mathematical formula. They don't. Their producers do. Mm. A mathematical formula of going, the film will probably make about this much. Yeah. So if we can raise this much then, you know, you can make the yeah, film yeah. you want to make. And if you can get that right mathematical formula and then cobble it together from a bunch of European people or yeah, whatever yeah. it is, then, you know, auteurs can keep going. And that's essentially the the setup that people like Lynch and Allen and Altman had. And, and it's, um, but it's sort of mad to think these are the great filmmakers of our time. And yet, 
I, I how do you make that balance work? I've seen it with um, maybe going on a bit of a tangent now, but like um, Alan, I think it's Alan J. Parker. I've been watching. I started watching Clute, and then like I watched oh, right. the Parallax View, and you know, like at some point, uh, you know, in the seventies, they were like at the top of their game, and then yeah. to see them kind of like, you know, not so much. I don't want to like, say that they've fallen down in a sense, but like slightly like going to the background. Well, it's, well, it's well pe Pecula was decapitated. That's why oh. he didn't continue making the films he <laughs> wanted to make. Did but, he? Um, was he? Yeah, he was, a, he was in a terrible um, accident. So the, yeah. Is it the helicopter oh. one? No, 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 no. No, that's uh, Twilight a, Zone, isn't it? Yeah, I think it was yeah. a car crash. But, but Alan J. Pecula, he was an extraordinary filmmaker. I mean, mm. and kind of almost his, his influence is everywhere as well talking about the, the Kubrick shiny thing but that idea of of filming something where you're kind of almost overhearing scenes where you can yeah. see doorways and through yeah, yeah. And, and that sense of claustrophobia like in all the presence men and you and all that kind of stuff that sense of of you being watched you know in the in the 70s when these you know the idea of surveillance state and 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 the paranoia of that time was able to tap into that so brilliantly and now you see that everywhere every yeah. film like that now handheld coming around yeah. the corner a bit of a wall in it people off center the framing of it all that kind of stuff it's massively influential just to add as well have you ever seen tampopo the japanese film yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. The, i found out the director was thrown off um top of a building by the yakuza you're just like <laughs> Yowzers. But, 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 <laughs> Michael, Everyone's a critic. <laughs> Michael, we've got a few questions here. Um right. may, may have been covered. You played a cyborg barman in Passengers. A couple of questions about bars. One, do you have a favorite bar? Um, two, if you owned a bar, would you chop the legs off the barman and put them all on wheels? Um, and third, have you seen the mural of yourself in Blanco's in Patalba? <laughs> I will I will start with the, the last part of that question first. Yes, I have seen the mural Class. in Blanco's. And in you fact, a mirror? I go and sit by it having coffee, hoping that people will suddenly, hey, is, that's you, is that? <laughs> I mean, genuinely, I do. If I have meetings with people yeah. in Patel, but I will tend to say, let's meet in Blanco's. Because <laughs> there's the mural, but then if yeah. you go up the stairs, there's also the Michael Sheen function suite. Yeah, been to a wedding and, in there, it was great. Yeah, and I was, and there are paintings of me as characters out on the wall outside. Um, and I was actually offered, Blanco's offered me. Um, Free ice cream. Uh, Cl <laughs> Clive, who sort of runs Blanco's, he uh, said, you can either have the Michael Sheen function suite or the Michael Sheen honeymoon suite. Oh. And, I th and so I thought, I thought you can't put pictures of me up in the honeymoon yeah. suite. Yeah, be intimidating, isn't it? Yeah, too intimidating. <laughs> You can't do that. So I went for the Michael Sheen function suite. So yeah, so I, I do very much. Uh, I am very much aware of that. The second one, if I did have my own bar, would I cut the legs off? I, I mean, absolutely. I would make yeah. it that you could only come into the bar if you do that thing where you put shoes on your knees yeah, and, yeah. and, and <laughs> waddle around so that everyone looks like they're really short. In fact, I almost did uh, have, a, have a pub. Me and Matthew Reese, mm. we lived in a... Uh, a place in Kilburn, just off the Kilburn High Road mm. for a while. And um, there was a pub on the Kilburn High Road that had this, it was like beautiful inside. It had this most amazing ceiling and really kind of amazing <laughs> uh, design inside, really old, gorgeous, like almost Elizabethan. And it was just whilst like 
Kilburn was being, there was a real battle going on of like gentrification in Kilburn. Mm. You had these old Irish guys who sat in there in the pub. Yeah. And even though it had been gentrified and made into a coffee shop, they still sat there going, yeah, like, they're, not they're, fucking leaving. Yeah, and they're like the, uh, And so this pub was up for sale. And I remember Matthew coming home one day and saying, should we go and put an offer in on that pub? And we sat there kind of umming and ahhing about it because like, neither of us had much money at the time, but like we had enough that we could have maybe yeah, maybe yeah. done that. And and by the time we were like, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. You went down and it had already gone. Some of them had already put an offer in and so on. So we what nearly- What would you called it? Sheen's Moonshine. Yeah, just Sheen's. Moon, moon, moonshine. Yeah, yeah machine. machine. Well, yeah. I mean, if uh, if you fancy going on that venture again, like we'll uh, we'll chip in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Close Encounter is your favorite film. If you have mm. the top three films, what are they? Uh, do top ten. No. Top oh <laughs> God. Top, I mean, it's top, top, well, top three. Um. Uh, well, Less honorable mentions. There we are. Cl- Close yeah. Encounters. Top five. Close Encounters. Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Um. Oh. And then you get into like, you yeah. know, which which Scorsese film, which Lynch film. All right, I'm going to say uh, Blue Velvet. Mm. I'm going to say Taxi Driver. I'm going to say House, which is House. the t-shirt t- yeah. that Nathan has got on. The, which scary, the film. most scariest <laughs> Japanese film ever. That's a, good top, that's, a, that's a very good top five. Was that five? Yeah. Close Encounters. Well, yeah, Close Encounters, Blue Velvet, House, Taxi Driver. Taxi Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now. Very solid five. Okay. Um, Let's say what, that for now then. What is your favourite colour? <laughs> My favourite colour is... If I'm, if I'm going to be completely honest about this, yeah. it's such a poncy colour. I wish it was a more manly colour, but I'm going to say teal. Oh, I've, I've recently painted <laughs> you know, my um, a, living room teal. The colour teal comes from the teal duck. That's where it comes from. Ah. I, I've got into bird watching, and a teal, ah. teal duck has this bright blue color on it right it's like iridescent almost isn't yeah it? And that's that's... i think secretly most men like the color teal yeah i'm yeah. afraid to say it because it sounds a bit woofy my uh, earlier i was when print. i saw your living room i was like oh i should have recorded my living room with my nice teal walls and my blade runner <laughs> like art print on one yes, side and then my nice. the thing uh art print on the other oh well here's an opportunity to so dispel, dispel or confirm some film myths about patalbert so people tend to say that there are two films that were inspired by Patelbert. One is Brazil, the Terry Gilliam film, and one is Blade Runner, the Ridley Scott film. I can confirm that one of those is true and one of those isn't. I think you told this Brazil think... is true, isn't it? Brazil, Brazil is, true. is true. So Terry Gilliam said that when he was doing the location scouting for Time Bandits, some of which is filmed in Newport, um, he was brought to Aberavon <coughs> Beach. And he, he was standing on Aberavon Beach and he was looking at the sea and the sand and then the steelworks on one side and at the time, the BP chemical plant on the other side and seeing the hills behind him. And he said he just started to hear in his head, and he got the idea for Brazil from standing on Aberavon Beach. Amazing. That's one. Blade Runner, I asked Ridley Scott if he got the idea for the look of Blade Runner from Patalba, and he said no. <laughs> I did well, find out um, last week that bits of Lawrence of Arabia were filmed in the Sandians in Mirtham Hour. Ah, yes. Which yes, is a bit I mad, isn't that it? Too. Yeah, that's yeah, an absolutely that. epic film, isn't it? Oh, just the score film. and just like, uh, yeah, it's class. Wasn't great. he Welsh T. Lawrence? No. Yeah, yeah, I think he was. He was born T- in... Tegwin, um... Tegwin Lawrence. Yeah. Was it actually? Tegwin... Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Tag win, Edwin. Michael, what I is your fa- Michael? What is your favorite food? My favorite food, I think, is ultimately at the end your of the day, cooking. Ham, <laughs> ham, egg, and chips. Very good. Ham, egg, and chips. If I could have a meal every day for the rest yeah. of my life and it wouldn't kill me, I would probably have ham, egg, and chips. We could try some happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do a documentary about it. Yeah, it's find a role that would require that. <laughs> yeah. like, well, my dad's from, well, funny enough, I was going to try to get him in there now because he's just showering after he's been surfing, but my old man's from the Sandfields and he, if he had, every day he would just eat a fried egg sandwich and that's what he would Fried eat. egg sandwich. Like, what are your top three fruits? These are the questions that took us a while. These are good questions. <laughs> Yeah. These are excellent questions. They're my top questions. three fruits. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, well, probably watermelon. That's what I eat most of. Mm. I mean, it's just delicious. It's juicy. It's sponsored by Dole, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, watermelon is definitely. I have come to eat more and more watermelon as I've gone. I wouldn't seen, I would I say that's a sign of maturity. No. Yeah. No. I, yeah. I am. Uh, and then I would say that would probably be followed by. I mean, I am partial to a mango. Yeah, we said mango earlier. Soft, that's in dance. That's in mine. As Top long three. as it's soft, I, I can't, I can't no. abide a hard mango. I'm no. not going anywhere. Near. And then some, I'll tell you something that I've come to enjoy very much in my latter years is... <laughs> I hope you're going to say my favourite thing. I, probably, I don't think so, because this is... <laughs> Because oh, there's okay. nothing exotic about this, and I know you're an exotic man. I am. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a nice apple cut up into mm. little slices and then a bit of almond butter and then you dip the bit of apple in the almond butter yeah. oh good stuff what, what, oh, it's what's good. your uh, go-to apple golden delicious you know uh pink uh, pink lady pink lady yeah they're class yeah they're nice and crisp and they what oh. are your, do you do you ever have takeaways and if, yeah. if you have a takeaway what would you get and what would you order um uh i do have takeaways not so much i'm trying to lose weight at the moment so we're not having takeaways at the moment my go-to <laughs> takeaway would be uh chinese and it would be yeah. lemon chicken mm. with uh egg fried rice and um you know the the crispy uh, aromatic duck with pancakes that would be Sorry. my absolute and again i would eat that every night but it would kill me so, you've passed yeah. our you yeah. passed our authenticrat uh corner <laughs> colors like we said earlier that we were going to it's, it's asking banal questions that reveal a lot about people. Um, you know, and we thought that, like, you know, if you asked, like, a, a leading politician about these questions, they'd have to, like, focus group them. <laughs> yeah. They don't have, like, favourite films, or they don't, like, you know, they don't like uh, f- yeah, yeah. fruit. Because, like, uh, what like, should my re- favourite film be? Yeah, yeah. What yeah, football team should I support? Yeah. I was yeah. kind of funny when um, Vaughan Gethin tweeted Wakanda forever, and I was just like, there's no way, like... <laughs> You know. do you, do well, you, don't, they, don't they have the Welsh flag in the uh, in yeah the, the prop film? department? Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, isn't that odd? Mike, do you have any um, any life advice for anyone listening? I I always say whenever anyone says, "What's the best bit of advice you've been given, and what advice would you give?" I I have a go to, which is someone once said to me, "Never stand up if you can sit down. Never sit down if you can lie down." And never lie down if you can be asleep. That's a good one. Uh, and that's something I've tried up. to live my life by. It's good. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, you know, and then also my advice would be, uh, my, my serious advice that I give 
people when they do ask is um, uh, you can spend your life wasting your entire life comparing yourself to other people. You, your path is your path and no one ultimately advice is pointless because no one can actually give you any real advice. Like you have to develop your own connection and relationship to your own instinct because that you will always know what is best. And especially when it comes to like artistic things, I think. And yeah. I think probably politics as well, ultimately. One of the things that I think uh, that doesn't get talked about enough in politics is love. Essentially, I think pol good policy is love in action. It has to be like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like people shy away from talking about that because it makes it you seem too pompous or something. But like the idea of 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 connection to others, of people centered thinking yeah. and strategies and, and policies, and, and putting people's other experiences, people's experiences first and foremost, their needs, not tick you know ticking boxes and one size fits all like actually caring about people yeah. and caring about the people who have had the hardest time the most that, that's love isn't it really so we yeah. have to find a way to as the further we move away from that the further we move away from love you know the further we move away from having people's needs real needs at the center and looking after the people that need help and we all need help at different times, you know. It's not one group of people who need help. Like we all need help, but being able to be there for when you need support is love, I think. And and that has to be there. That that you know, never lose touch with that. Um, and that would be. And I think when it comes to art, the same thing is like never lose touch with with what your instinct tells you, what your gut tells you, what you read, what floats your boat, and what you know. Joseph Campbell said, "Follow your bliss." It's like just go with with what excites you. I think more and more, as I've got older as well, it's made me realize the things that I was into when I was a teenager, that I think at the time I was like, well, I won't be into these things forever. These are just things I'm into now. And then and eventually I'll be into the things that I'll be into. Like that never goes away. That's the stuff mm. that still really excites me the most and gives me a sense of kind of meaning and, and real kind of deep happiness and contentment when I'm engaged in that stuff. And you know, like Jung, when Jung had his sort of famous breakdown after his break with Freud, he ended up um, just making little, he remembered when he was a little kid, he used to go down to the bank of the river and he used to just make little sort of roads and pathways with a stick in the sand and stuff. And as a middle-aged man, he went back and did that again. And that was what rebuilt his psyche and his sense of self and, and put him on the path of becoming one of the great figures of the 20th century. And, and it was by going back to the things of childhood and, and, and the things that kind of gave him pleasure then. And I think that's become more and more important to me, I think, as I've got older. It's weird, isn't it? Because I guess like uh, your sense of self is like constantly unfixed, isn't it? Or like you know, it's it's like a very like um, malleable thing. Like mm. you know, you're not just like who you are now isn't obviously who you were five years ago. But like there's always that idea of like you're going to become who you are rather than yes. just so like, you're there waiting are. for you. Yeah, yeah exactly, but you're yeah. like. And then you get to a certain age. You haven't got there yet, but you, you know, you get to a certain age and you go. Oh fuck! This this is it then. Yeah. This is I was yeah no I've gone past like <laughs> so I might as well just like the things that I like then. <laughs> I think that was a beautiful and profound way to finish. Definitely, uh, Mike. Is there any um, anyone you'd like to give a shout out to or uh, start a beef with or yeah, any anyone in Hollywood? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I want to start a beef with Tom Hanks. Do you know, Stephen Merchant has this theory that Tom Hanks is actually evil. You know, he's, he's supposedly, you know, the nicest guy in, in Hollywood and all that. And Stephen Merchant has this theory that he's just this evil villain. And every everyone has been fooled by it. So I should start a beef with Tom Hanks on, on behalf of Steve Merchant as well. Thank you. Um, shout out. <laughs> well, I would like to give a shout out to... Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm making a, a, a program at the moment, uh, which is about the care system mm-hmm. uh, and children in, in, and young people in Wales coming through and leaving the care system. And um, I went to um, talk to a, an organization called Voices from Care. Do you, mm-hmm. do you know that organization? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and they essentially are advocates for <coughs> people in the care system. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's just one of those organizations that, again, like, you know, there's no money, They everything's tight, it's really tough, and they're doing, they're just, you know, the stories and the, the experiences that they're, you know, hearing about and helping with. So I want to give a big shout out to uh, everyone who works at uh, Voices From Care. Awesome. Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm really buzzing. Michael Sheen, um, it's been an absolute, uh, well, an honour and a privilege. And we're, we're just... Every uh, podcast episode up until this point was just filler, to be honest. Uh, this is <laughs> what we've done now. <laughs> No, but thanks oh, so much. Brilliant. It's a pleasure. It's lovely. And I, I, I in a way, I, I know we've tried to, to make it happen before, but in a way, I'm glad that I was yeah. I was able to do the hundredth. Mm. Yeah, yeah. all, all power to you. And it's been such a pleasure listening to you. And it's, you know, whether I agree or don't agree with whatever you're saying and talking about at the time, it's always stimulating. It's always interesting. It thanks always so challenges and makes me think more. And, and you've expanded my horizons. So thank you very much for that. Oh, cheers. Well, cheers, um, the next like period piece you're in, will you wear a t-shirt? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like if there's the quiz part two, just have Chris Tarrant, right? <laughs> <laughs> you're on. Yeah. Oh, Fantastic. All right. Thanks, thanks so, so much, much Mike. Right. Cheers. Is Uncle Dan funny? No. I'm a bit of the elevator. That's all, folks.